I'm so, so happy to be hosting everyone, all of you fantastic humans here on this live recording. We're at episode 22 of Inspiring Insights. I'm your host, Erin. If you don't know me, I'm from a small town called Buren, Newfoundland. And now I live in Toronto. I offer uh, global mindfulness services and, and energy medicine on that scale. And I come from a long line of ancestors of Irish and English farmers, fishers, and miners. And I, I say that because it's important to socially locate yourself <laughs> uh, when you're in a position on a platform like this. And, you know, ever since I was born, I always knew that I wanted to get into the business of amplifying voices. And, you know, I wasn't sure how that would happen. I knew that it wasn't necessarily going to be my voice. And I think this past year has really spoken to that. And I'm really happy that, you know, this platform can be a host and a, and a, a brave space for folks to come on here in the wellness industry that are doing amazing things. So, you know, every day I wake up and I ask myself, what makes me feel alive? What makes me feel inspired? And the answer is always connecting to other folks that have aligned themselves with their own healing ability. And so, you know, that's what Inspiring Insights is all about. It's a space to share passions of wellness providers, of coaches, of practitioners, and really getting to know them and hearing their stories alongside all you fans out there and, uh, and all the audience members. So, so thank you for being here. Inspiring Insights is a show brought to you by Reawaken Co., which is an online education platform focused on connecting you to the right natural wellness practitioner so that you don't get lost in the current patriarchal, disempowering, uh, I would say broken system that we have right now. We're doing our best, but it's pretty broken. <laughs> and, you know, doing the work of decolonizing and, and shedding ingrained oppression can be really hard and really heavy. And it's important that we do it. And that we do it now and that's why it's important to have a good support network of wellness professionals behind you uh, when you need it so if you are tuning in right now like i said before drop a little wave in the comments section love to hear you love to see you uh, i love you know just feeling your energy and for everyone who's watching the replay know that i'm also reaching out to you right now and, and we are joining in this circle to to really have this beautiful space that we're going to create today and before we start, um, because February is um, Black History Month, I've been highlighting Black excellence on this podcast. So I wanna share with you a few Black owned businesses within the GTA, and I'll drop them in the chat as well. Um, so I have a couple recommendations that I like. Uh, there's Plant House Company, they sell juices, very good. Hex Infused, also juices and also delicious uh there's leaves of magic i'll put i'll put the instagram you're gonna put uh, them on their okay. handles yeah awesome. on the side so that people can go ahead and follow them and they're amazing yeah. like please order leaves of magic has um, great teas mm. and then uh so blackowned.to is actually the space uh, where i go to kind of look for these these companies and then black owned CA, I guess it stands for Canada, um, is sh is soon to be uh, happening as well. So I'll put all of those in the chat right now. And I think people in the wellness industry would also be interested in those. There's a lot yes. more on Black-owned TO, so go ahead and have a look on Instagram. 
And without further ado, thank you, Dr. Vivian, for that, uh, for your patience. I, I really want to bring this, this special guest that we have here tonight into the spotlight. So we have Dr. Vivian Liang. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. Allow me to read your bio and then we'll get down to the nitty gritty caregiving and cancer talk. Sounds good. Amazing. So Dr. Liv <laughs> Dr. Vivian Liang is a naturopathic doctor at Nova Health. She's passionate about the role of naturopathic medicine in integrative cancer care. She graduated from the University of Toronto with an honors bachelor of science and continued her education at the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine, where we met. She believes in an evidence-based approach to individualized naturopathic oncology care and is committed to providing the best patient outcomes. She's been involved in, co-authored and presented integrative oncology research. She's presented and awarded, been awarded for her research in acupuncture for chemotherapy-induced peripheral neuropathy. <laughs> She's written for integrative, integrated healthcare practitioners, the pulse, and rethink breast cancer. And in addition to her, all of her academia and naturopathic degree, uh, Dr. Vivian is also on track to obtain the fellow by the American Board of Naturopathic Oncology Board certification, otherwise known as FABNO. <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a big Fabno. acronym. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and a registered acupuncturist diploma as well. She is passionate about combining the philosophies of Western and Eastern medicine, particularly with a strong skill set in traditional Chinese acupuncture and medical acupuncture. Dr. Vivian is a member of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians, Ontario Association of Naturopathic Doctors, and the Canadian Association of Naturopathic Doctors. So, so glad to have you here, Dr. Vivian. Thank you for having me again and inviting me to be on here. Mm -hmm. I love it. I love it. And this is the very first <laughs> someone's saying, woo. I love it. <laughs> uh, I love interactivity, by the way. So if you missed that, like, go ahead, you know, do your thing in the comments section, just like speak your truth, because I love that, um, as, as Dr. Vivian and I speak ours. So cancer, this is such a big topic and, you know, one that's really close to both you and I mm -hmm. um, in terms of caregiving. And I think that, you know, we'll get into all of that as we go, but I just maybe want to get a little feel from the audience who, you know, who here has been touched by cancer in some way. You, just, you can just say yes or no in the chat because I'm super interested. I mean, who who hasn't been touched by cancer in some way, right? And I'm interested to know, Dr. Vivian, where naturopathic medicine comes into that mix. And because oftentimes, you know, when someone is diagnosed with cancer, there's obviously this you know, whole mental, emotional thing going on, but also, okay, where does the system need me to go next and for what, and what are my options? And mm -hmm. um, so how, you know, where does naturopathic medicine fall into that mix? Yeah, so I would say that naturopathic medicine can be a part of any cancer journey, right from the very beginning, even before the person has cancer. Um, and I think that's often missed a lot. And, you know, you and I both have learned that prevention is key, right? And like that we focus, our education is focused in prevention. And one of those chronic diseases that we do focus on is cancer. Um, but in terms of uh, supporting people throughout their cancer journey, the most common um, 
the most common person that I see is uh, those that are starting conventional treatment um, and are worried about side effects, are worried about the way that, you know, their body will handle treatment from here on out, how it will affect them in the future. Um, and then having them recuperate because, you know, I think for those that have not uh, seen people who go through cancer, it can be a very taxing experience on the body and, you know, it's, it's exhausting and to recover from that could take a really long time and um, having the support of a naturopathic doctor on your team can really help accelerate that and help, you know, identify areas of, of uh, your healthcare that could be missed otherwise. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And there's there's a lot that naturopathic medicine can do as as it states in your bio, you know, that is is integrative, really truly mm -hmm. integrative with the treatment options that are already out there, right? So, yeah. you know, for someone who has uh, I like that you said, you know, before you, they're even thinking about it, maybe even before they've had a diagnosis, um, you know, what are some of the things that folks can do in terms of prevention? maybe, you know, long term? Yeah, so I would say that um, the, the most basic thing that people could be doing for prevention is having a healthy lifestyle. And, you know, there's nothing, like every time I say that to my patients, like, they're like, that's it? Like, is that it? And I'm like, yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing special about it. It's nothing people haven't heard of. But I think oftentimes, you know, we can jump too, too deep into, all the fancy stuff and then really miss the the point of it all which is to have a healthy lifestyle and what does that mean right so having you know um good physical activity an adequate amount of it and eating healthy and eating right um you know avoiding toxins whenever you can so i think like those are all things that really do have an impact on someone's long-term health that again i it's not it's nothing it's nothing crazy i'm not saying anything you know, brown gang, but I think oftentimes people, um, they're just so in their lives that it can be missed. And um, sometimes pointing that out to them really brings them back to the present and figuring out how to really help them forwards. Yeah. Yes, for sure. And you know, it's, it's true. I mean, I think it's tough because we live in a society where uh, it, we're almost conditioned to be reactive, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of preventative. So there's so much, I mean, there's so much that it's almost overwhelming how much you can do and how much, you know, healthy you can be or try to be. And it seems that sometimes even still people get, um, you know, a diagnosis that they were looking to avoid their entire life. So, you know, what is acceptable to you versus like, um, you know, what's, what's off of the moderate chain in terms of like those preventative, um, cancer related risks? Yeah. So, I mean, there's things in general that like, you know, I, the most common one I probably see is, um, sun exposure and also smoking. Like those are things that people have talked about over and over again to the point where people I'm pretty sure are just sick of hearing about it. Um, and, and I think people talk about it over and over again because there's so much to support that just mitigating those risks. It's something that's so um, it's so well researched. It's so well shown that I think it ends up being diluted in you know pop culture and it ends up being diluted in 
a bunch of other things in daily lives so it just kind of we just become immune to it so you know oftentimes people um especially people who like are just tired of hearing um you know put on sunscreen put on sunscreen it's just over and over again it, it kind of loses its its importance um but you know just bringing it back to how it really impacts your risk of getting you know cancers and the impact of how it causes cancers and i think understanding that relationship really helps people understand why um changing those behaviors are really important yes sister yes <laughs> it gets tough nobody yeah. wants to hear put on sunscreen again you know nobody i know wants the lecture and no i think that's why it's, right it's so important to um as practitioners i think and i know there's some practitioners here on the call so i want to say this as practitioners we really need to you know come at this with a place of empowering the patient to really understand and and see and connect to their own form of healing you know and that not that's not always eating a certain type of diet or mm -hmm. um you know putting on sunscreen every 15 minutes or whatever yeah well, that could be part of it but you know impact i found that just working with with people and giving them directive advice is is not useful um mm -hmm. if anything it kind of you know makes them feel bad when they don't reach those outcomes and reach that so you know, is there anything that someone can do right now? You know, okay, so like I presumably don't have a diagnosis of cancer right now. Um, is there anything in terms of my diet or anything that's been deemed like super good for prevention? Yeah, so in terms of diet wise, there's no one diet, right? Like there's no one diet that that's that's the best. Um, but I think, you know, you know, the main thing is, is having a diet that works for you um, as as an individual right so um, the diet that has been shown to have the most um, beneficial effects uh, for cancer from a cancer perspective is the is not the mediterranean diet but more so just a whole a whole foods whole grains vegetable based diet and like again it doesn't sound it doesn't sound sexy and it doesn't sound like you know groundbreaking but that's what that's what has been shown and combining that with being physically active right so at least 150 minutes a week um, which is really about 20 25 minutes a day right so if someone is walking brisk walking for 20 minutes that's that's good that's efficient like nobody needs to go on a bender for three hours and um, exercise on Sunday, but just physical activity and consistency is key. So I think in terms of uh, aspects to, to relay to people is consistency is the most important thing. So, you know, changing your diet is great, but is it sustainable? Can you eat that way? And if not, what can you change about it to make it more palatable so that you can eat healthier consistently? And same thing with exercise, finding ways to fit it into your schedule so that it's not a burden or it's not too much or too little. Um, and that is something that is different for every individual. But I think in terms of, yeah, mitigating long-term risk, we'll, we'll end up talking about, you know, eating healthy, whole foods, whole grains, lots of vegetables, minimizing processed foods like hot dogs and um, hamburgers and 
sausages uh, or like, I mean, you can make healthy sausages, but like, you know, the sausages at, at the grocery stores are probably not the greatest. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, minimizing alcohol consumption, not smoking, that's a really big one. So mm -hmm. those are things that are really important that people can do right now. Nice. Great. Okay. Yeah. That <laughs> sounds good to me. I'm like, I'm already halfway there. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. We um, all need a little bit of work. Totally. And, yeah. you know, I might be biased in this question, but uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about genetic risks. You know, mm -hmm. if you have a parent that has died of a certain type of cancer um, or even a grandparent or, or a sister or a brother, um, you know, is there is there much in my own life that I can change in terms of my genetics and and how those genes respond to the environment and the stresses that I'm under? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, and I think that really depends on the type of cancer that's affected. Mm -hmm. um, most Some cancers have been associated with um, genetics. So for example, breast cancer is one, ovarian cancer is one. Um, and those are very, those have specific genetic testing that's available to see if someone is ca a carrier for those, for those um, risks. But, um, you know, if someone does have one of those risks or has, you know, um, or has a parent that has cancer with, with one of those really genetically connected ones, then in terms of mitigating the genetic aspect of it, I think in terms of improving your, your health status is going to be even more so important, right? So everything that I had mentioned before is even going to be more relevant. Um, and then in terms of mitigating the genetic risk, yeah, there's a little bit of a baseline. You're at elevated uh, baseline risk, but you know, that's not a death sentence. And that doesn't mean that people are going to get it. It just means that, you know, you have to be a little bit more careful. And that's not something that is, um, that's not something that should prevent people from living their lives. Um, it's, it's more so, you know, something to take care of. And I think, I think everyone in their lives has some sort of has some sort of genetic predisposition to something, right? Like no one is walking around risk-free. And I think someone who has a genetic mutation for a specific kind of cancer is just one, it's just, that's just one of the ways. It's not, doesn't mean you're gonna get it, but it's just a re more of a reason to take care of yourself. And, you know, if you, people don't need, I mean, as a healthcare practitioner, people shouldn't need a reason to be taking care of themselves other than the fact that they should be taking care of themselves, but more of a reason to. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you there. It's, it's tough because it can become a sentence, you know, like a life mm -hmm. sentence and a destiny almost when someone uh, loses somebody close to you. And, you know, we'll t I think we'll talk more about that in, in terms of caregiving, but, you know, uh, Dr. Vivian, I wanted to ask you as well, most, because most of my audience is, you know, quite young, I would say, um, you know, mostly female bodied folks who are around like anywhere from 25 to 40, um, you know, what kinds of cancers should, should they be looking out for? Maybe what are the, some of the ones that come up like at a young or early stage? Yeah, so I would say breast cancer is probably the most prevalent one. Um, in terms of young, 
though the demographic that breast cancer shows up in more common is the eld I mean, it's like post 60. Um, mm -hmm. But that being said, a lot of my practice, I'm seeing more and more younger women, which is really unfortunate. Um, and, you know, that could be a various, there's multiple reasons for why that happens. And that could be, you know, increased testing or, you know, for whatever reason, there's genetics involved as well. So, I mean, that's probably the most common type of cancer that I'll see of females in that, in that uh, demographic. Another one that I've we'll see is also cervical cancers as well. So one way to mitigate this risk um, because cervical cancer, um, one of the risk factors is HPV. You know, so making sure that you have either, you know, if you're vaccinated for it or, you know, you, you have safe sex um, practices, that's also going to be really important in terms of mitigating risk for that too. So, and also, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of young women don't really realize is that, you know, we're at this age where we're, we feel like we're at the peak of our health, right? Like we don't need to, we don't need to be concerned about, you know, our achy, breaky bodies. We're just like, don't, we can, we can keep pushing and keep pushing because this is our time to, to work, you know, to hustle and to, and to ignore our body's signs and symptoms. And I think that, you know, because this is the age where like, you could start noticing some some symptoms, for example, breast cancer. If you don't notice it, it can kind of fester and spread. So it's really important to, you know, take care of yourself, listen to your body and to stop when to stop when you need it, right? Because I think again, I'm I'm sure, Erin, you've probably seen this too. Just people our age just keep pushing and keep going and they don't realize that something's wrong until something's really wrong. Um, so I would that that's kind of the one thing that I would say to patients and people of this demographic. Of course, yeah, and that's I think why I've taken to you know the importance of mindfulness so mm -hmm. much in people's lives, and yes. it's because you know not only do we live in a society that encourages that and you know really tells you to not stop ever, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know beyond that we we also don't know our own boundaries. And I think in the energetic uh, world, because I practice Reiki as well, that there's a lot of uh, reference to that, to boundary setting, especially in, um, in breast cancer uh, mm -hmm. patients. So, you know, it's interesting to, to see the, the similarities and also to, to see that specifically within, you know, even like the 30 year old range of people, you know, we're just starting our lives out. We're getting everything in order. We're starting to have, you know, babies and kids and marriages and lives and, you know, things that are outside of us. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's something that I really have gained a huge perspective on during the pandemic is that just like settling into myself and slowing down and not having, you know, an hour or two hours a day dedicated to commuting and, and everything mm -hmm. else because sitting with myself, oh my God, sitting with our feelings, so difficult. So, so hard. Difficult. That's why no one does it. <laughs> right? Yeah. So difficult. Can I get an amen? Like, yeah. I, and it's, it's when you choose to do it, it's like it's so hard and so easy to just be like nah I'm not gonna do that today and just like watch Netflix and that's totally okay you know if you're in that space and I think if I can say this you know what all illness really does is to show us that we're not living our 
our authentic life full enough, uh, whatever way that means. We're not answering our call. We're not answering our dharma. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it gives us somewhat of a perspective to sit back and step back and say, oh, okay, I'm, you know, I can, I can get out of this river. I can be mm -hmm. on the shoreline and watch things go by and still be okay. I don't have yeah. to keep going. Exactly. Oh, well, there's, there's the end of my TED talk. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming. Thank you for coming. Um, let's talk about screening guidelines, Dr. Vivian, because um, I think a lot of, you know, folks, especially with breast cancer have like, are we supposed to be doing self-examinations of the chest? I don't know mm -hmm. how many years it goes by. Like, I, I have no idea. Should I just go see my doctor? Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and yes. I think the guidelines for self-breast exams have changed over time, which is like why people are really confused about it. Um, but as of right now, I think the recommendation is to not necessarily doing do to do a self-breast exam, but to be familiar with how your breasts feel. And um, if there's anything that feels out of place or feels really weird, or if you feel pain, then there's then that's a concern to bring up to your medical doctor. Um, but in terms of you know doing self breast exams, because the demographic of uh, between 20 to 40, um, there are a lot of breast conditions, you know, like fibrocystic breasts. Um, that's a really common and having breast cysts, those are really common in this age group. So, you know, um, even though you might necessarily feel something, it might not be cancer. So it's always good to know how your breasts feel. And if there's any areas of discomfort or pain, that's something to bring up to your family doctor. But I think because of the prevalence of, you know, um, other benign conditions, that's why self breast exams are not, are not, um, recommended as as much so it's like a much vaguer term so just to know how your breasts feel um and in terms of screening for breast um, exams too i believe family doctors will do it as a part of their annual physicals um and that's just something that they they throw in there too but uh, the screening aspect of it doesn't start till 50 um, unless there's a family history of breast cancer of an immediate family member so sister or mom um, and then the guidelines will be changed in a little bit in in those in those people but otherwise in our demographic i would say you know recognizing how how your breast feels and noticing, you know, if you are prone to having lumps or if you are prone that certain times of the month, like right before your period, you get a, you get a breast cyst, like that's very common. So um, knowing that about your body. And again, this goes back to self-care and taking care of yourself and not being so go, 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 and just taking time to just, to just get to know your body. Mm -hmm. yeah. What can you say about the, like the watch and wait kind of approach is that good bad or recommended at all yeah so the watch and wait approach is normally for those um those lesions in the breast that they're not really sure of and it could be benign 
Um, and it's usually the wait period is the three to six month wait period. And then they kind of repeat it and see if it goes anywhere. Um, there's definitely pros and cons to this, right? So the cons is obviously people kind of fall through the cracks. And if, you know, if you're not advocating for yourself or you feel like something's wrong, but you just kind of wait it through. I hear so many stories of people saying, you know, it was like they weren't concerned and I waited however long and then it came back as cancer and it's like, you know, in a more advanced stage. And um, that being said, that is the minority of people compared to the entire population. Um, and I think from a st statistical perspective, um, it's the watch and wait approach is the way for the government to, you know, maximize the amount of resources that they have. Uh, with the least amount of money. So again, I think it's it's important to know your body and to recognize those signs. So, you know, if you feel like there's there's actual genuine concern and you don't want to wait uh, and see approach, I would, you know, definitely advocate for yourself because again, I also have patients who have said, you know, I they wanted me to watch and wait, but I knew something was wrong and I didn't like that. And then they pushed and pushed and pushed, and then they found out it was cancer. And I can't imagine how many stories um, people hear that are like that. And I think it's really important to advocate for yourself. But I mean, the watch and wait approach is usually it's it works because it doesn't um, it reduces the risk of people going under biopsies for unnecessary reasons. So if it is just a cyst and it'll go away, then that's fine. Then people didn't need to go in for a biopsy and, you know, use up all of those resources that needed to, to perform a biopsy. And, you know, there's, again, pros and cons to that. But um, the guideline is, the guideline, that's what the guideline says. So like that watch and wait approach. Yeah, I hear you. Um... Wow. Yeah, it's it's tough. It's tough. And I'm sure, Dr. Vivian, with, you know, with a diagnosis of cancer in general, you know, like I can just speak for my own um, background. When my father was diagnosed with cancer, it was totally like as soon as I heard the word, it was a death sentence. It was like, oh, that's it. Here we go. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. buckle up for this marathon. Right. train ride of a crazy crazy time <laughs> you know however yeah. many months you have or whatever and yeah. and there must be so much emotional health that's not um you know pieces of our emotional health that are really not um treated i guess or lack of a better word from you know kind of the medical standpoint when there's chemo and everything else happening so you know as a naturopath what are some things that that naturopaths do really well for folks dealing with the whole label of cancer? Yeah, so I definitely think that, you know, cancer is a very, it can be associated with a death sentence, like you said, right? Like people hear the word cancer and they're like, that's it. Let me start going to my lawyers, get my will in check. Like, <laughs> yeah. And oftentimes, you know, people who do get diagnosis, some of them are indolent cancers, which means that years and years and years and years before they actually cause any issue. Um, and the reason why that label is put on that individual who does have, you know, um, 
slower growing cancers it's it's because you know they want people to be more vigilant about it you know follow to keep on the follow-ups and to not miss those follow-ups right to emphasize you know you have to take care of yourself and that's what i tell that's what i tell people right when they get diagnosed with a cancer that's may not necessarily be you know uh something that is that they may have for a long, long time. Um, that you know, if this is this is your chance to turn a new leaf, right? This is your chance to. This is like a, essentially a wake up call. There's no there's no treatment needed usually in this case, and you know, this is your chance to turn things around. Um, and I think a lot of people see that as like a, a second almost. Like this is your way of. Um, like if I don't do something now, then something in the future could, it could get worse. Um, but I mean, I think in terms of uh, the, the word cancer in general, I think can be really scary. Um, and for a lot of people too, just knowing that, you know, they have cancer, it's, I think they also are afraid of how people end up treating them. And you know, if the word gets out that they have cancer, people start treating them differently. And I, that's a that's a fear that a lot of people I've talked to had, and they don't want to tell people because they don't want you know their coworkers treating them any differently. They don't want their boss to start you know taking away certain it, certain things that they have. So I mean, I think that's very understandable. Um, and I think as society too, we also have this label to cancer, right? Like when we say, when we see someone that has cancer, we just automatically see that. Or like if we see someone that's bald walking down the street, we're like, oh man, she has cancer. And then like, you just automatically think that like, oh man, their life must be so sad. I feel so bad for them. I feel so bad for their kids. Like, and that's not necessarily the case. They might be completely, they might be bald for another, maybe because they want to, right? Like, I think it's just associated with such a negative um, connotation that people just, people don't like talking about it. And because people don't like talking about it, it's something that individuals suffer on their own. Um, and then it kind of festers and it festers and then people just, it goes down this negative, this negative rabbit hole. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I think we could say a lot more about that. Yeah. <laughs> Down the spiral train, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. How do we, and you brought up a good point because, okay, somebody walking down the street who's bald, if, you know, if it looks like a cisgendered woman and thinking, oh my God, she has breast cancer or like mm -hmm. whatever. And it goes, it's, it's, it's like automatic and I hate that. <laughs> so, you know, we can unpack that as right. it comes, but there's, there's so much in <clears throat> giving us or us giving pity to that person instead of seeing them mm -hmm. where they're, where they are, you know, whatever that is, wherever that is. And, you know, there's such a difference between sympathy and empathy, right? The sympathy is like, Oh, give me pity. Like, um, you know, dote on me and, you know, I'm not, I'm not strong enough kind of thing. Whereas empathy mm -hmm. is like, see you, I really see you and that must suck. And mm -hmm. how do you need help? Mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. goes a long way, you know, so if anybody out there who, who is dealing with somebody who, you know, has just been diagnosed with cancer or is struggling with it and has been for a while, um, I think it's really important to know that 
you know, doing that small act is super helpful because folks usually are actually doing their own sort of um, healing in terms of, you know, losing their own independence and, and all of that. So, you know, and that's, I think, what we really need to grapple with while we're still living, mm-hmm. you know, with my privilege of being quote unquote healthy right now, like we need to grapple with this aspect of how are we living and how can we unpack and, and reckon with the things that we don't want to deal with, the things that we throw under the rug, because that's more, that's important because we won't be able to do that work when we're sick. Mm-hmm. Right? <sighs> so yeah. normalizing the struggle is a big one. And I'm, I'm happy that you're doing that, Dr. Rivian. So yeah. Yeah. I think it's something that a lot of people um, struggle with, especially those who are, you know, who have cancer diagnoses, but you know, they're like, I'm more than my cancer. Like I still have, I still have to, you know, watch my kids on, on freaking zoom school. Like I still have those same parental concerns, but you know, all that all people see is like, oh man, I feel so bad. She must be having such a hard life. And she's like, and often they're like, well, so are you, I'm having the same struggles as everyone else. Um, but I, and that just doesn't get translated. And I think as a society, it's because because we've kind of put this huge black cloud over the word cancer. And it's, again, like, it just sounds like a death sentence, but it's really not. Mm-hmm. Or it doesn't yeah. have to be. Shine the light on the black cloud. Just shine yeah. it. Yeah. The light yeah. got to get in somehow. Yeah. Um, Dr. Vivian, I have so many more questions, but what I want to do is just direct folks, if they haven't already gotten it, to go down to the files section. So it's a few buttons below the chat option. Um, Dr. Vivian has graciously shared with us her new PDF um, of actually care for the caregiver of folks who have been diagnosed with cancer. So go ahead and download that. That's such a great gift. Thank you, Dr. Vivian, for that. And, and in that, I was looking at it before our chat, and I think there's something that I would like to ask you before we open it up for general questions from the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned, you know, boundaries, and I think it's important to really, really stress this because we touched on it earlier, but the guilt that comes with caregiving for someone else who has a diagnosis of cancer. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So I think that is something that's super common and it doesn't necessarily even need to be for someone who has cancer, just in general, just, I think people, um, in this age demographic have, you know, uh, parents or, or caregivers or guardians or loved ones that are getting older and, you know, we're becoming or transitioning into the stage of our lives where we know we used to be dependent and now they're dependent on us. So I think one of the biggest things that I hear as well is uh, guilt, right? So not feel like not, not saying no, um, and to just continuously do things that are asked of us and, you know, not knowing when that's, you know, taking it, stuff away from ourselves and uh, really affecting our own health too. So I, I really think that this is super common. And again, it's very, um, it's very not talked about because, you know, people don't like saying no and people are scared of getting judged by themselves 
they judge themselves, you know, whoever is depending on them, they're scared of ju that judgment, other people's judgment. Um, and then I think it's at the end of the day, it's very common. And, you know, just to acknowledge it because you're uh, human and that you have feelings and obviously you care a lot, which is why you feel the guilt. I think it would be more concerning if people did not have guilt and just said no whenever and didn't give an F about anything, right? So I think having guilt is a good thing and having guilt is just recognizing that you have these emotions and you have boundaries that you may be stepping over or you may be blurring, but it's important that you have it, acknowledge it, but it's also something that we need to, we need to accept and continue. Yes, totally. And if you, um, if folks want to share, you know, maybe they have some, some experiences with that, with guilt, um, anybody tuning in right now, if you feel comfortable, I would love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Just write it in the chat. You can also send it directly to me if you want it to be anonymous and then I can just read it as an anonymous comment. Um, mm -hmm. there's an option for that. And there's also, if you feel comfortable, there's a uh, option for you to come on camera and do the same and actually speak. So uh, I know that's putting people on the spot a little bit, but <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's really nice to have a little more sense of community um, in this. And I think that's, you know, really where holistic health and integrative health shine in cancer care specifically. And Dr. Vivian, I was wondering if you feel comfortable enough to share a little bit about your own experience with caregiving and, and caregiver burnout and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So um, uh, these past, my personal experience with caregiving has been, you know, through the role of, you know, being a daughter of someone who has cancer, right, specifically breast cancer. Um, and I think also just becoming uh, aware of um, became, even becoming aware that I, I became a caregiver wasn't something that I had thought about right away. I was just like, oh, I'm just, you know, taking my mom to appointments. I'm just sitting in. I'm just, you know, uh, listening to her, right? I, I didn't really think that that was caregiving because I just thought those were, you know, the roles of of a, of a daughter, of a, of a child, right? I didn't really put a label on it. And I think it really sunk in when, you know, I'm at work and I'm talking to those who are caregiving and I'm like, you know what, I, I, I really resonate with a lot of what you're saying. And I think the caregiving aspect of it, it can get really, it can get very difficult because, um, you know, you're trying to do everything you can for that individual that you care about. And again, you know, saying no and setting those boundaries are really difficult and, you know, feelings of guilt coming up. It's like, well, why am I saying no? Is it because I'm putting myself before someone else? Um, is it because I feel like my things are more important? Um, like, why aren't they a priority? And that guilt comes over and over again. And I think those are very common experiences that a lot of people feel. And I think when people do it long enough, they end up burning out um, and burning out to the point where, you know, they feel like they're not motivated in their own lives to move forward, um, you know, and things start to slip, you know, and, that, and the most common experience, uh, the most common thing that I hear is that, you know, at work, they start losing focus, they start looting, losing motivation, and then they, um, 
you know, turn into this individual who's dedicated their lives on caregiving, but at the same time, they're burnt out. And I think becoming and reaching that stage of burnout can be really dangerous because then you start getting into feelings of resentment as well. And um, uh, just to, you know, not to to be a Debbie Downer, but at the end of the road, you don't want to have those negative feelings for that individual that you initially had great intentions for in the beginning to care about them. And then at the end, you know, you're looking back and saying things like, well, you know, I didn't need to do this. Like now my whatever is ruined and, and all that stuff. So I think saying no and setting the boundaries is something that's so important to avoid caregiver burnout. Um, and to recognize, you know, what are what are your roles as a caregiver? Right? What, what can, what can you provide? And how can you help? Um, and uh, recognizing that your your needs and your health are also really important. And I think that's something that, again, I didn't initially think about right away. I just thought I was, you know, I just thought that I, I should be there. Uh, and it wasn't until afterwards, I was like, you know what? It ends up being, yeah, I, I, I guess I am a caregiver, you know? And then that's when, I think that's when kind of the light bulb came on. And I think when people don't have that light bulb, they're just in this, um, in this circle or in the cycle of, you know, caring and then burnout and then caring and then burnout. And I think that's really dangerous. Well, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. There's, there's so much in that, that I think, you know, we can start to tackle as, as mm -hmm. caregivers and as folks that are in the you know, health practitioner kind of wellness field. Um, I think we could use a dose of our own medicine here and there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe definitely. more often, more consistent, yeah. as you say. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you for that. It, it's it's something that's really tough, and I'm curious if anybody has any other thoughts on that from the audience because this is, you know, I, I think. Have you ever do you ever do like open work? like you know create some spaces where folks can just come and like i know there's a lot of peer support for um people that have like caregivers of someone with cancer or mm -hmm. um, a lot of other kinds of circles like that yeah no i i have not but that is definitely part of it once covid is over but that's definitely something i really do want to start reaching out to and you know i can empathize a lot with caregivers right like you know, coming because when I have talked, when I shared about these ideas, a lot of them are like, "Well, I don't have the time to do that. I'm I'm too busy doing other things. I'm too busy caring for another individual. <laughs> okay, I'm too busy caregiving. Exactly. So, I think in terms of you know going back to taking care of yourself as a caregiver, um, really improves the way that you can care give right and really understanding that when you burn yourself out the quality of care that you can provide is also not great so understanding that and you know not giving your all you know right in the beginning and nourishing yourself is is so important um and uh, yeah but that's definitely an idea that i've been i've been kind of brewing at the back of my mind because it, this is such an important topic and especially i think for um people in this demographic it's becoming more and more relevant that again like we're we're just so into our own our own worlds and when we get pulled out of it we can be so into it into something else but we often forget about ourselves mm -hmm. 
The distraction is nice to have. Yes. <laughs> uh, we yes. are soon heading into question period. I uh, would love your questions. So start thinking, put on your little thinking caps and, and write down some questions for us in the chat. Um, Dr. Vivian is here to answer, you know, um, not very specific questions <laughs> in terms of what we can do over, you know, an online open session. But um, yeah. You know, anything that has anything to do, you know, thoughts on caregiving, thoughts on cancer, certain types of cancer guidelines, et cetera, um, please reach out and, you know, start asking those questions now. I have one last question for you, Dr. Vivian, mm -hmm. and that is what keeps you inspired? What keeps me inspired? Um, I think that would have to be the patients that I work with every day. And I think the amount of strength I see and those who are, you know, who have a cancer diagnosis, who are cancer survivors, they're just, they're just the light. And I think they represent so many positive things about humanity. And it's like, oh my God, I just love you guys. Just love everybody. <laughs> um, but I think that's something that I think continuously fills my cup. And it just gives me so much pleasure to work with um, these folks because it's just so it's just so positive they're so um, inspiring and the difficulties they've come through it's it's unlike any other un, any other kind of person I see so I would say my patience that's so sweet thank oh. you um, thanks for having me yeah, of course. Um, so we'll take some questions now. Uh, thank you everyone for being here and for sticking it out right through 53 minutes of this. I, we could <laughs> honestly talk for another 53 at least. Um, I, I do have one question from someone who couldn't make it today. So I'm going to ask that in a bit, but I'll just leave okay. it open for now, just in case anybody has anything right now. And any last words from you, Dr. Vivian, and how can folks get in contact with you? Yeah, so um, they can contact me through Instagram um, and my website. So I have a contact sheet on my website and you can contact me through there. Um, but I can also link my email to the chat too. So if anyone has any other questions or they want to um, privately message me, I can definitely answer their questions there as well. Yeah, for sure. That's great. Um, and I'll put Vivian's um, Instagram handle in the chat as well for folks. Um, and as well, anyone that's watching this replay through Webinar Jam, so anybody who actually registered and couldn't make it tonight, um, you will get sent the replay. And when you're watching it, it will look exactly as if you were attending live. So the chat will be open and everything. So you can actually ask a question right now and uh, it'll just come right to me through my email. So I can either forward it to Dr. Vivian or try to do my best to answer it, whatever the question is. <laughs> <laughs> so we have one question here from Winnie. I'll read it out. What is the relationship between a naturopathic doctor and a MD? Yeah, so I would say the relationship is a ideally a collaborative one. Um, but that's not always the case, um, but ideally it's collaborative. So in terms of working with an MD, I think it's important that, you know, at the end of the day, everyone wants the best for the patient. There's no denying that. Um, and I think the collaboration is what makes the 
the process much more smooth for for the patient and everyone involved. So I think in terms of uh, in a in a cancer context, um, this is very relevant because often if people are doing conventional care, they're they're uh, liaising with their medical doctor quite often. Um, so as a naturopathic doctor in their circle of healthcare, um, it's important that everyone is on the same page and everyone's talking about, you know, the concerns um, that each other are having. And again, it's it's a collaborative one, right? So, and that's the way that I work with my patients' medical team. And um, that seems to be so far quite positive, although, you know, you do get people who are, you know, not responsive. And that's, that's not a reflection on, you know, the patient. That's not a reflection on the naturopathic doctor. Um, but I think at the end of the day, everyone wants what's best for the patient. And I think sometimes that gets lost in translation, whether it's due to bedside manners or whether it's due to different ideologies. But I think at the end of the day, everyone's just trying to do what's best for the patient. Um, and I think that's to, to always keep that in mind and to be humbled by that and not to let ego take over. But in all, all in all, ideally a collaborative one, but it might not be that way. But collaborative is my answer. Mm -hmm. And to follow up on that, Winnie, thank you so much for that question. It's very useful. Um, there are certain places that actually literally are integrative clinics. So they'll have, mm -hmm. you know, collaborative approaches like Dr. Vivian was talking about. Um, can you mention any of those specifically, Dr. Vivian? I'm sure you're more versed on that than I am. <laughs> Yeah, so um, in Burlington, um, because that's where I practice in Burlington, um, we work in an integrative clinic, so Nova Health, and we have a variety of different uh, healthcare providers there. Another one would be Springdale, um, and that's also another clinic that works alongside medical doctors and naturopathic doctors. Um, so there are, that being said, there are a lot more um, collaborators with other healthcare providers other than medical doctors. And I think that's more so reflecting on the way that our healthcare system is set up because, you know, for example, RMTs or chiros, um, all of those individuals and all of those professions don't bill through OHIP. So their billing system is a little bit different than, you know, a conventional medical doctor's office would. So the systems involved are a little bit more complicated. So I would say that in terms of the collaboration, usually it's in, it can be in the same office. It's okay if it's in a different office, but those are the, yeah, Springdale. And I can't remember, there's another one in Burlington that I'm not um, familiar, I, I can't remember the name, but another one in Toronto as well, the ICC, that's another one. Um, so those are really great. And the ICC stands for? Integrative Cancer Center. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Just didn't want thank to. Thank you. Assume. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> thank you, Winnie, for that um, question. Any other questions? Um, I will go ahead and uh, read out the one that I have received. So, um, Dr. Vivian, mm -hmm. um, chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy is common. And I know that you have done some research in acupuncture for that. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? 
and how acupuncture in general can help patients with cancer. Yeah, sure. So um, I'll address the neuropathy part first because it's a little bit more specific. Mm -hmm. um, so chemotherapy, uh, chemo uh, induced peripheral neuropathy is actually quite common. It's common in many different kinds of cancer, uh, different kind of cancers and chemos, but in the context of breast cancer, it's quite common because one of the drugs in the, uh, that's given as chemo, uh, neuropathy is, is, is common. Um, and it's beneficial because the reason why it's, it's needed, like an uh, in intervention is needed, is because uh, there's nothing right now that medical doctors can do to address peripheral neuropathy. There's nothing that they can do to predict it, and there's nothing they can do to stop it, other than reducing the dose of uh, the therapy. Mm. Um, so that presents a, a really big concern, especially if, you know, if someone's going through chemo and they get really bad neuropathy, the last thing that they want to do is to be stopped early or they don't want to be, you know, the dose should be reduced because then efficacy changes, right? So mm -hmm. um, that's a really big field as to why acupuncture has been studied and why it's so, um, like why there's so much evidence behind it because there's not a really great solution for it otherwise. Um, another reason why it's also so great uh, during chemo is because there are no interactions, right? You're not, you're not taking anything. Um, you're not changing the way that the chemo is, is metabolized in the body. Acupuncture is just um, you do something on the outside and that's it. So that's why also another, that's another reason why this intervention has been so widely studied uh, to work well with uh, chemothe chemotherapy. Um, in terms of how it works, so from a Western perspective, um, neuropathy usually occurs because there's damage to the nerve endings. And um, with chemo, because it's such a toxic substance and nerves are generally really slow at regeneration, um, nerves can get impacted and after it can get impacted, it takes a long time for it to recover. So what acupuncture does is that it helps to increase the blood flow to those nerve endings and also helps to stimulate those nerve endings. And how I describe it to a lot of people is, you know, when you have those needles at the nerve endings, you're kind of waking waking those nerves up. You're waking them up and letting them know that they're needed and that they're they're, they still need to be working and they need to be there. Um, and um, that's that's why I find it so beneficial. And from a traditional Chinese medicine perspective, um, what acupuncture does is that it uh, removes obstructions and energetic obstructions. So when we have uh, needles inserted into certain acupuncture points, it resolves those obstructions and helps the energy move uh, better and flow through the extremities and that will help resolve the neuropathy. So, you know, from a Western and Eastern perspective, uh, acupuncture for chemotherapy induced peripheral neuropathy has been extremely well studied and usually well tolerated. Um, and compared to, you know, compared to other kinds of interventions, this one has, you know, one of the best uh, amount of research in it. Wow, very useful to know. Um, I'm sure the, uh, there's a lot of other unique symptoms that occur depending on, um, you know, the, the type of cancer, the type of mm -hmm. treatment that you're doing. And 
uh, everything like that. So I'm sure this is, you know, a bit more unique and specific to folks, but I think that having an integrative approach can really, really help with a lot of side effects of just the chemotherapy mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that you might be going through. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for that. That's very robust. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I love it. Um, Dr. Vivian, this has been such a pleasure. Uh, would you mind just sharing uh, with the folks your email just in case you oh, don't yes. see it in the chat? Oh, yes. I totally um, And your Instagram. I said that I would do it, but I don't want, I know there's some periods in there and I, I might get it screwed up. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I get it screwed up too. There you go. There you go. So go ahead, follow Dr. Vivian Liang on Instagram. Um, go ahead, send her a message if you need. Uh, I love everything that you've shared with us here, Dr. Vivian. It's been super insightful and very inspiring. And I hope that all of you folks out there watching have also been inspired and um, inspired to not only take care of yourselves for prevention and, and for general health, but also for caregiving and so that you can show up the best you can for other folks in your family that, that may or may not get diagnosed with some illness later on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thank you, Erin, for giving me the space to talk about what I love, because this is really something that I could go on and on about. Um, but I really appreciate you giving me that opportunity. Of course. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Vivian. And thank you, everyone, uh, for showing up and being here with us in the audience. This has been episode 22 of Inspiring Insights. Uh, go ahead and follow us on Instagram. We're at reawaken underscore co. Uh, we're also on Facebook, the same thing. And uh, we also just started a blog on Patreon. So go ahead, check us out. All of the places, all of the things. And we are here every Wednesday night live online. Uh, anyone in the world can join with us. So this is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And uh, we're going to keep it going. Thanks, everyone. Have a great night. Bye.